Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I say warm welcome because here in the Twin Cities, it is so cold. <laughs> it is so cold. It was like eight below when I woke up. Yeah, no, my car said, no, thank you, low power. It was like some sort of hybrid vehicle, and it just said, nope, I'm not going to warm up for however long yeah. it takes. I, th- I think the, the speed of the acceleration, I got zero to 60 in like 47 seconds instead of 43 yeah. with that no power. Here's a really, really bad diet idea. On mornings like this, just put your your tongue on a, a steel pole. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll never have taste buds again. Did you ever? Do you ever do that as a kid? I did. That yeah, where you rip off the top layer of your tongue. <laughs> of no, it's, you I did. definitely, absolutely have done that before. And you, yeah. and you lost all taste for food. I mean, <laughs> you just for you about did. a week. So yeah. you really do. Anyway, horrible idea. I was just joking. You only know, do that once in life. Yeah. Anyway, guy talk. Guys who talk are all ready. The power panel is fully here and in place. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, and 007 Justin Jepson. Gentlemen. Nice to have you here. I read a question already. It's come in from a listener, Mike. He said, um, how did Jesus define the word good? When called good teacher, he responded with, there's only one who is good, and that is God. And he did say one and did not include himself in it. Uh, or did he if there are three in one? So um, what did... what? did the one who will judge humanity on Judgment Day have to say about good? A young a young ruler comes up and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. And I think what's going on there is this young ruler had no idea that Jesus was God in the flesh. So I think Jesus is trying to make him think, all right, wait a minute, you called me good. Well, only God is good. Mm. And so I think the implication is, therefore, who must I be? Now, I, I don't think the, the rich young ruler got that. Uh, but that verse, uh, <laughs> that verse is the teaching that absolutely nobody is good but God alone. Uh, that includes, however, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Justin, what do you say? Yeah, well, I think in terms of defining goodness, um, I think that this, it's stemming from who God is, it's his character, and, you know, it's also displayed in, in, in what he does, you know, and the fact that it's he, he does and gives to others according to his character um, and from a motive that's really not limited to, you know, what the other person is or does. So in other words, he... He is good towards those who are not good, (laughs) Um, and he doesn't limit his goodness to those who um, are based upon others' behavior. So I think um, I agree with Tom there, though. I think that it's one of Jesus' ways and devices, even just as a rabbi and as a teacher, um, he's trying to get underneath the surface to uncover and help that rich young ruler um, see who he actually is believing God to be and to be like. And so, um, but I mean, I think we got to take that 
that scenario into context in terms of Jesus not explicitly including himself there, but he, he does explicitly elsewhere say that he is uh, one with the Father and that he indeed is God, which would mean that he is also good. And we can clearly see that by the way that Jesus lives his life, that he t- certainly is good. And so he's not just a good teacher, though. He's a good God. All right. Thank you, Justin. Jepson, Tom Pierce, what do you say? It's interesting. I love these words, uh, especially the word good. It's a word that we use all the time. I grew up using the word good. Yeah. Not thinking too much about it. You know, that was a good supper. That was a good pizza, etc. In Jesus' day, though, it was like the term I am. Rarely used, unless it's used in, in a certain context. And to call Jesus good. And here's the part I, I miss. We have the wonderful word of God. I wish I could see the expressions on people's face. When Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? I think there was a twinkle, mm. you know, because the the young man didn't realize what he was saying, but he got it. I mean, mm. he said the right thing. This Jesus is the same as Yahweh. And I think it was really kind of revelatory for people. And that's what got Jesus in trouble, because the Pharisees finally <laughs> wanted to crucify Jesus, because here he was a mere man making himself out, they said, to be God. Wow. P- Peter. Yeah, boy. Um, agreed. And... Uh, I think one of the things that's helpful as a way of understanding the biblical text is that when there's there's a um, teaching like this, it helps to go backwards in the text and say, so when when does good show up for the first time in the Bible? Mm-hmm. And because and, there's these themes that are weaving their way through the text, and good actually shows up in Genesis 1 right at the beginning. And there's a couple of things that we could say. It's probably a, a teaching for a different time. But the Hebrew people were a verb-based people, and mm-hmm. the Hebrew language is a verb Based language, meaning that there's not like nouns in the way we think of it. Um, everything is always moving. Everything is always changing. Everything is always folding and unfolding. Uh, in the Hebrew, there's no present tense. And this matters for this word, it's good. So I, it, always, it puzzles me a little bit when we always say, hey, we should live in the present. But then if we try, we can't. I mean, if we all at the count of three said, one, two, three, live in the present, go, we miss it. it, yeah. it there, there's no such thing as present. And so in light of that, when God uses the word good at the beginning of creation, He's talking about the conditions are now right for everything to keep unfolding according to the way that I want it to unfold. So Jesus talks about things like we discern by their fruit. We discern by how things keep unfolding. Is it unfolding in a way that is consistent with who God is? And so I think when Jesus is saying these words, he's saying God is the source of that which is good. God is the source of that which is designed. I'm even following within his good right now as his servant. And it's only God the Father alone who is good and the source of good, because I'm even walking out the plan that he has for me right mm-hmm. now. I love that questions are coming in without me even inviting people to send them. <laughs> this is how much I think people have gotten used to guide talk, just knowing, oh, it's guide talk, it's time to send questions. But if you have one, let me know what what it is. You can send it via text over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. If you feel more comfortable with email, it's bill at myfaithradio. I love this question. I would like a better understanding of the scope and depth of my sins so that I have a greater understanding of what Jesus did for me. Please expound on this. Can I go first? Even yes. though I just went last? No, no, no. There's you something about first. the Bible about that, right? Yeah, you go <laughs> so, first, Peter. I, you know, I, I think what what is maybe helpful, at least it has been for me, and maybe it won't be in, in this case, but we so often think of sin as sort of a disposition we have, and so we're either unredeemed or redeemed. But sin in the biblical text is much more of a power at work within us that is disfiguring us and destroying us and wreaking havoc on us. And so 
when I think about the depth of my sin, you think about it in terms of a disease or, or something that is, is just destroying the beautiful image that I and all of us as God's beloved are meant to be. And so when we think about what Jesus did, what he did is he actually, because of our sin, we're subject to death, both a physical and a spiritual death. But he kind of played the ultimate bait and switch with the kingdom of darkness and saying, you know what? I am going to empty myself of my divinity so that I can die and go into those waters of death and thus beat all of the curse of death and sin and the whole thing and come out the other side with the resurrection life of the spirit. And so that's most of the witness of the New Testament is that we're now able to live by a different kind of power in our life. Uh, it's, we still struggle with sin. It's still real. But there's the resurrection power or walking by the spirit, walking by the power. So what he did in fully emptying himself in a way to become subject to the waters of death so that he could destroy sin on our behalf so we could also live in freedom. Uh, it, it is mind by and he did it for free. He did it out of grace. He, he did it in a move in, in, in love for his beloved. And, and that can break a person at the end of the day. Thank you, Peter. I love that. And I love the question because it's one rarely do we ask or think deeply about. No kidding. Now, I've got an answer, and I don't know if the, the guy who wrote in is going to like this or not, but here's what you do. You take two minutes a day, and you get a full-length mirror, and you stand in front of it. And when you stand in front of the mirror, if you want to see the depth of your sin and the glory of Jesus, you start asking yourself these questions. How much did I talk like Jesus today? How much did I give grace to other people today? How much did I forgive even my enemies today? And when you do that, that's where the depth starts to come in, because then you have to look deeply at yourself, but don't stay there. The object is not to stay looking in the mirror at how deep you go, but how glorious Jesus is and what he offers. And when I have actually gotten people to do that in counseling, I recommended that, actually got them to do that. I saw people that were what I would call emotionally healed Mm. of a lot of things Mm. because they kept beating up on themselves, but they weren't getting any answers from Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, they understand their goal is to be like Jesus as well as know him. And it changed their life. Mm. Yeah. Who wants to follow that, Tom Brock? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, when when I was 13 years old, that's when I took communion for the first time. And the pastor handed everybody in the confirmation class a bulletin called How to Prepare for Holy Communion. And you're, he said, you're spo- you should do this before you take communion. And I grew up doing this. And what it is, it it's examining your heart by using the Ten Commandments with three questions, like let's just say, uh, and how you've broken each commandment in thought, word, and deed. Uh, have I misused the name of God this week? Uh, have I neglected my uh, uh, prayer? I mean, after each commandment are three questions asking, have you violated that commandment in thought, word, or deed? By the time you get done with all 30 of those questions, you know you need Holy Communion and the Forgiveness of Sins. And so I I have handed that bulletin out to many people. It's made me the guilt-ridden Lutheran that I am today, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) No, but honestly, it was very good for me at age 13 to do that every month, because we took communion once a month in my church back then. It just showed me huge time what a sinner I am and how much I need Christ and His Atonement. Mm -hmm. Justin? Yeah, absolutely. I love. I mean, we could we could spend the whole hour on this question, and um, but I think the um, you know two two passages of scripture that come to my mind that I think in order to acknowledge the depth of our sin, it actually doesn't come from looking first at our sin, but looking at a revelation of who God is. 
you know, I think of Isaiah 6, um, when Isaiah saw, you know, the one seated on the throne. And, um, and, and we know from John 12 that who he saw was Jesus. And, I mean, his, you know, his first, his first thought wasn't, wow, like, look at that. It was, woe is me. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a, in a land of unclean lips. And then we recognize the holiness and the glory um, of who God is and how we are, he is so different and so other than us and how we're not, we are not worthy uh, to be to be called into fellowship with him. But then I, I love a, a kind of a similar passage in the New Testament in Luke 5. Um, you, you can kind of compare these passages together, but, you know, Peter, it says, you know, Jesus called his first disciples, and he, he tells his disciples, put the boat back out and let down your nets for a catch. And they said, well, we were out there all night doing that. And he goes, well, do it on the other side. And and then they have this huge catch, and they, the, the nets are bursting, and then, it's so interesting, Peter, I looked it up when Peter saw it, he said he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And you think of what about, like, just something of revelation of who God is and what he has done um, reckon, helps us recognize that we um, are not just sinners by choice, but by nature. And that's why the Bible says that we're actually a new creation. Mm-hmm. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of the beloved Son. And so I think it having a, a revelation of who God is and, and certainly what he has done toward us, his goodness, right? We consider his goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that gives us an understanding and an appreciation for the cost um, that it took to pay for our salvation. And um, so I think at the cross, we see both the, the depth of our sin, but also the immensity of our value of, yeah. of what it cost God to buy his bride back and to redeem us into a relationship with himself. Thank you, Justin. Great answer. And thank you for suggesting we could spend the whole hour on one question, but I get paid per question, so <laughs> I, I need a lot of questions right. coming in right now. So right. I'll help. answer faster next time. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Help me out at 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. That's all next. Lots more. show guy talk is happening or guys who talk let me as you know what your questions are we've got a bunch coming in so we'll move through these as quickly as possible with exceptionally good answers by the panel power panel is pastor tom brock tom parish peter kapsner and justin jepson and here's a interesting question uh, in my women's bible study this week we had the question what is the significance of 12 disciples and 12 tribes of israel why did jesus choose 12 disciples does it have something to do with the 12 tribes of Israel? Peter. Yeah, no, it, it does. I mean, the, the, they're the new Israel. That's uh, that's certainly part of the symbolism. But I think it's also helpful. If somebody wanted to do a study 
on Jewish numerology. And, and when I say that, I have to be a little bit careful because it probably rings a lot of alarm bells that, you know, for people that grew up in a time where there's a book, I remember, I think it was called the Bible code or something. And people oh, yeah. were looking for these hidden sort of algebraic algorithms <laughs> in the Bible to reveal the hidden secrets of God. We're not talking about that, but, but we're also not talking about a book that was written by more scientifically minded 21st century Americans. The, the way that the Jews understood the world was very much um, a blend of symbol and invisible reality, invisible reality, kind of all blended together as once. And so numbers are actual numbers in the text. But the reason why the number three shows up 487 times, well, there's a reason for it. The reason why 12 shows up as often as it does, or 40 days and 40 nights or 40 years, 40 is a symbol of a time of testing and, and trial and coming into a new kind of life. The number 12 is one of the many numbers that symbolizes the completeness of something. Three is the completeness of harmony, it tends to be. Seven is the completeness of a work, whereas 12 is the completeness of, of sort of a government that God has in mind or some sort of earthly authority, as it were. And so you even see the 144,000 in the book of Revelation as a derivative of this 12, sort of the new people that are coming into the new kingdom. It, that's not 144,000 actual people. It's it's a symbol of that. So yeah, I mean, in, in a real short answer of it is that the 12 is symbolic of the new Israel that's being formed at this new kingdom. But there's also, it would be a really fun study for them in their Bible study mm-hmm. to do a study of the numerology of the Jewish mind. Yeah. How much of that did you just make up? Well, I was just reading it off a website, so I'm not <laughs> sure it's true. <laughs> Anybody else want to add to that? Add or subtract? You pretty much covered the bases. Oh. And the reason I say that is that I think we, we miss... From the Old Testament covenant to the New Testament covenant, the parallels. And, and Jesus, you know, again, I think of the road to Emmaus. He said to the two men on the road to Emmaus, we explained to them how he was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. And we miss that and mm-hmm. misunderstand it. But what we have in Jesus is the perfection of what Israel was called to do. Indeed. Tom or Justin, any well, other I, thoughts? Yeah, I think of Matt, there's the Matthew 19 verse, which says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging mm. the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm. So the, the, the disciples will take place, will take part in the judgment at the second coming. And uh, in fact, we all will. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that we will judge angels? Human Christians will mm. judge the angels. So you know, uh, this is not totally spelled out. I don't know what all that means, but it's it's spoken that uh, what what I think Peter said earlier was the church is the new Israel. Now that's not to say that God doesn't have future plans for the conversion of the Jews to Christ. That's what Romans nine, ten, and eleven. But the the new people of God are not the ethnic physical descendants of Abraham. It's the church. Mm. And in First Peter, yeah. he actually says that. You can right. read that. You know, you are a holy priesthood, a royal nation. Mm. Yeah. Indeed. Justin, do you have yeah. a uh, closing thought on that? Yeah. No, I think it's just, uh, you know, this is kind of one of those questions that, you know, biblical theology seeks to answer, you know, versus systematic theology in the sense of, you know, the biblical theology of taking a concept, a word. You know, Peter talked about even the first time that the word good shows up in the biblical text. And 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 it's almost like a seed that gets planted, and, and then it, it continues to to bloom and to blossom to to its fullness. And you know, this is painting in really broad strokes, but there's a sense in which you could say the Old Testament is kind of the realm of promise, and the New Testament is the realm of fulfillment. 
And, you know, when Jesus says the Sermon of the Mouth, that it didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, um, but to fulfill them, mm-hmm. um, that, that would include this in terms of the way God was setting up and choosing a people for himself and, and how he went about doing that, including, you know, Jacob's 12 sons and the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And so Jesus is, is bringing to completion a paradigm that God introduced under the Old Covenant, and he's fulfilling it in the New. Mm. Here's a great question. Why, when healing others— would Jesus tell them to go out and tell others, but other times told them to tell no one? And a lot of head shaking here in the studio. <laughs> I can't get to a website fast enough for this one. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can only think of one time where Jesus told somebody who got healed to go tell others, and that was the demoniac. Mm. He, he, the demoniac wanted to follow Christ and after he got healed, and Jesus said, no, go home and tell people what great things God has done for you. The rest of the time, I can't think of any other time but that. The rest of the time, he says, he heals somebody, he says, now don't go tell people. (laughs) And I think it's because two things were going on. Uh, He wanted to be able to teach and get into a town without being mobbed. Uh, And his, his main reason for coming was not healing but teaching, but, you know, both went on. But the other thing, it's called the Messianic Secret, <laughs> that Jesus mm-hmm. does want to keep the fact that he's the Messiah a secret, because everybody in Judaism had this false view of the Messiah, that the Messiah is going to come and get rid of Pontius Pilate and set up a kingdom on earth to get rid of the Romans. And so Jesus hides his Messiahship because he has to die on the cross, because that's what the Messiah is, has come to do. And and then later, of course, all the stories are told and written down in the Gospels. But until the cross is accomplished, because nobody was expecting that kind of a Messiah, Jesus wants to keep his Messiahship kind of under wraps. Thank you, Tom Brock. All right, Justin, we've got about 45 seconds if you'd like to tag on to that. Yeah, well. You know, a number of the places where Jesus heals in the, in the Gospels, it, it happened in a very public setting, you know. Um, and But I think of, you know, one instance that comes to my mind that's kind of a both and is when Jesus heals uh, the leper, cleanses the leper. And, and he does tell him to say nothing to anyone, but he says, but go show yourself to the priest mm-hmm. and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof of them. And I think the reason why he was doing that is he's wanting them, this, this leper, to first be restored back into community. Um, and, and so I think he, it was not so much that he didn't always want people to tell people about what happened in their healing, which it falls into the messianic secret kind of paradigm that Tom was talking about. But I think he also had a certain pattern of how he wanted people to share so that it wasn't only to conceal his identity, but also for the benefit of the relate relational aspect and the social aspect of uh, those whom he healed. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll take a uh, little break. And we were would love to have your questions, 877-933-2484, if you're a brand-new listener. Maybe you'd love to get an official welcome pack from Faith Radio. You can go and request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. You know, just think about getting a really nice 8 by 10 black and white of Guy Talk. Well, you can think all you want. It's not in the welcome pack, because there is literally no demand for that from what I've been told. So anyway, we'll take a, yeah, no, nothing ever. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Guy Talk, where we buy in bulk and pass the savings on to you. That is what we do, because I've got quite a power panel here. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, Justin Jepson, and me, your host, uh, Bill. So uh, send the questions over, 877-933-2484. Here's a great question. Was the book of Genesis and the very earliest books passed down by word of mouth until stories actually started to be recorded in writing? Tom Brock put you on the spot. I, well, I think there there is talk in I, in one of the Genesis or Exodus, probably Exodus, it talks about Moses writing things mm-hmm. down. So, you know, uh, some of this is a bit of a mystery. I don't know that anybody's got, got a clear answer on how exactly Genesis got written down, but the, the uh, belief is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. It never says that. That's the uh, very ancient uh, belief. Uh, and But it does talk about Moses writing things down. And, uh, you know, we should say this too. When we say we believe the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, that doesn't mean dictation, that, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul takes out his quill and, okay, God, go. Paul, to the church at Rome. Paul is the church at Rome. Yes, not to God. Uh, grace and peace to you. And it, it, Paul just wrote a letter to the Romans. I don't think Paul knew that was going to be Scripture for the next 2,000 years, but God did. Mm-hmm. So when we, we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, I don't know exactly how Genesis got put together. Moses wrote probably at least part of it, maybe all of it. But whoever did what, the Holy Spirit was controlling the whole thing. Yeah, I know. I think that's well said. I mean, nobody was there at the origin of creation documenting it as God was doing that. And so it, what you just talked about, Tom, I think is is a really reliable way to understand how these things went. And, and Moses is the most maybe commonly understood person to have recorded some of those books. But, you know, sometimes the Bible gets critiqued for the, you know, well, they couldn't have possibly written it down in time and, and stories change over time and all of that. But that really does a disservice, I think, to how the Jewish people um, learned over the years. And, and I think we really, we, we live in such an information-based culture where it's easy to just say something and then you forget about it the next half a second later, and then you say it again and forget about it and do that. But the Jewish people lived in a rhythm and a ritual kind of society where they celebrated the same stories, they told the same stories in the same way, they talked about things in the same way. And and because papyrus, the writing material that on which they would write was so expensive, even if you were to study under a rabbi, there was an expectation that you would memorize the rabbi's words as the rabbi was saying them. And so they just said, you know, I, I think they must have used a lot more of their brain than I ever will in terms of their ability to retain that kind of information. And the way they taught was so very different. So these stories, I think, are wholly reliable, independent of how and when they were written down. And that's still going on around the world. You go to some of the uh, countries over in Asia, uh, India or elsewhere, and the people do not have a lot of writing instruments, but they have an oral tradition. It goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years to where literally the same story is being told in detail from 2,000 years ago. And we miss that because uh, we don't have that. You said it well in the beginning. We, we say it and it's gone and whatever. They had that. And by the time, whether it was Moses or whoever the Lord used to write it down, uh, there was consistency in the story 
to where what was written down was what had been talked about for generations to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And, I, you know, I remember um, as a senior in high school being in a class where the teacher was wanting to essentially critique the, the lack of validity of Scripture and the truthfulness of Scripture by having us play a game of telephone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 attacking the the oral tradition, you know that that Peter was re- was referencing. And so, of course, we probably have all have done that before, and we could probably play that here between the four of us, and we probably would completely get get it wrong in terms of passing down one phrase from one person to the next to the next to the next. But it was it was completely unlike that, um, you know, the, in terms of the way the society functioned and the the stories that were told over and over again uh, with again, with such a high level of accuracy. And if you compare that, you know, even the New Testament in terms of the number of manuscripts that we have and even other writings of antiquity that take the actual date of the event to when it was actually written down, so so when the oral tradition became written, um, we're talking often, uh, you know, periods of decades versus other writings in antiquity, you know, something like Homer's Odyssey or that type of thing. Um, You know, it's centuries after um, that things were written down. And so, um, in terms of the just the historical uh, veracity or truthfulness of of of, of scripture, that there is li- there is no other comparison in terms of other writings than antiquity. And many people are beginning to see that. You know, Joe Rogan has gotten a lot of uh, flack on Spotify recently. What people don't realize is the day before that came out, he had on Jordan or Peterson, mm-hmm. who is the great psychologist, and they talked for four hours about the Bible. And Jordan Peterson admits he's not a Christian, but he's he's real close. But he he wound up saying in those four hours that the Bible is the most phenomenal book in world history. It is beyond phenomenal because of the correlation between what was said here and what's said over here over all these years. And yet it's the same story from beginning to end. So if you ever get a chance to listen to that, listen to that mm-hmm. great podcast. Yeah, everyone mm-hmm. agrees with that in this room. All right. Uh, thank you for your great questions. Uh, let's see here. Do you think men are timid in their worship when it seems women are more open to it? Yeah, I think it depends. You know, I mean, sometimes it depends on on personality, but um, I think it's also maybe the way that we've grown up in the culture that it's maybe put, you know, expressions of masculinity and femininity within, you know, a certain box. Um, you know, you think of you think of men in the Bible. You think of David dancing in his underwear when the ark was coming back in. You know, and was, well, you think uh, of that. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah, that'd be a sight to see. But l- let me oh, just tell you a, a recent experience. I was just at a, a, a men's prayer summit at a church here in the Twin Cities, um, where there's 250 men, um, and spending a time of uh, of spontaneous scripture reading and singing. And seeing um, a group of 250 diverse men um, calling out and shouting out and singing out and uh, praying out loud in front of everybody else. Um, I think, again, it just it takes some time to maybe peel back the layers and just to be in God's presence where, you know, shame and timidity, um, uh, you know, can be stripped away. But and generally, yeah, sometimes women can be more expressive than men, but um, I think sometimes that gets the that's often truncated in terms of the way that we've been socialized to believe what's been, what's acceptable ways to express ourselves. All right. Here's another great question. Unless anybody has anything else to add to that. I think it was covered nicely. 
move on. Yeah. Um, here's a quick one. Maybe one of you can answer this one. Could Melchizedek be another name for Jesus? Tom Parrish? There's a lot of debate on that. People are all over the place. I personally, after my study of Scripture, I think there's a correlation there. I'm not saying he is, but there's a correlation scripturally that's hard to avoid. So I would encourage people, go back and take a look at the references to Melchizedek and what it says, especially in Hebrews, and then look at Jesus. All right, thank you. Here's a question. I'm doing a chronological reading through the Bible, and in Genesis 25.1, it talks about Abraham getting remarried after Sarah died to someone called Keturah. Then in 1 Chronicles 132, it calls Keturah Abraham's concubine, not wife. Which is it? We're all shaking our heads. We don't know. I wasn't there. Seemed like Tom Brock was ready for that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'd have to study on that yeah, one. Me yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. That's a great question. It's a, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Hebrews talks about imitating your leaders. Do you have any advice for family discipleship with younger kids? What are ways that you lead your homes and families? I'm going to let uh, Peter and Justin deal with this one. Hmm. Me or you, Justin? (laughs) You guys do rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, yeah. Go go for it, Justin. Um, Well, you know, what what I've been learning myself, you know, having three kids under the age of five, so we're definitely uh, newbies at this, um, you know, in terms of imitating leaders um, and, and in terms of, you know, uh, kids are so much more uh, going to imitate, you know, what they see um, and, and what they hear and not by necessarily what you're telling them, but just by what they observe you and how you're living your life. You know, so I think, um, for example, whenever, like I've talked about this before on the show, I think with you, Bill, and when I pray with my son Bennett at night, um, he always begins his prayer with, with thank you. And I, I, I never remembered him telling, you know, Bennett, now when you pray, you start this way, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and it wasn't until he, it was almost a mirror of like, where did he get that? And then I caught myself one, one time praying. But every time I pray with him, that's how I start. <laughs> and so he's simply imitating what I'm doing. And so in terms of that, they're, as impressionable as they are, they're going to watch, um, you know, not only just what you do, but how you do what you do. And, um you know, I read somewhere, too, one of the greatest gifts that you can display for your children is just to demonstrate self-control. You know, and uh, I've noticed when I'm frazzled, when I'm anxious, when I'm, you know, in a hurry or in a rush, um, that has a way of just rippling out into my kids and into the family. But if I can, by God's spirit, you know, be patient and kind and meek and gentle and, you know, um, uh, and, and gracious, like that, that has a way to um, impress, uh, imp- it's impressionable upon them. So I can mm-hmm. only imagine, and Peter can take it from here, like that only continues to expand as the kids continue to grow mm-hmm. into the teenage and young adult years. Yeah, no, Justin, I, I, I just agree so much with what you said. And having kids right now that are of the age ranges from 11 up to 22, I think what I'm finding is that these different seasons require different kinds of things and, and different kinds of, of intersections with our kids' lives. But I think maybe the common thing that I've experienced is that kids, especially as they get older, they can sniff out if um, if you really are who you say you are. And, and I think the development of authentic, inside-out, Christ-like character is such a hard-fought journey. But but to become a person that is um, that lives within the simplicity of transparency 
you you have to be able to to be willing to be um, humble and broken and honest with your sin and a quick repenter and go to those places with God um, in the honesty of your own frail frailty. But but in all of that, God does grow us up in the kingdom from the inside out. He did, the idea of becoming Christ-like is not that I'm able to put on a series of properly ordered behaviors. The idea of becoming Christ-like is that my internal world actually is becoming in, in more alignment with the internal world of Jesus. And then that kind of stuff bleeds out. And I'll tell you what, it, yeah, I'm Justin, I'm sure you get it. <laughs> I can count on, on, I don't know, hands and toes and other people's hands and toes how many, how many times I fail at that in a day. But kids, they're, they're pretty resilient if you're the kind of person who is humble and a quick repenter and, and wants to authentically see those things with the work of the Spirit inside of you change over time. And then they're really compelled by that. That, that bears witness to something more than my teaching them about the kingdom bears witness. And I want to teach them about the kingdom, but, but it is a life lived that is going to do it at the end of the mm-hmm. day. Amen. Here's a quick question before we go to break. Was it an actual snake that tempted Eve in the garden in Genesis, or is that symbolic? Yes, to both. Okay. And can I just, if I can say this really quickly, yeah. um, the serpent, again, we've been talking about symbols today in yeah. this show. The serpent shows up all the time in the biblical text. And when the serpent shows up, it's a serpent, but it also is reflective uh, of the kind of doubt that draws us away from God. So when Moses doesn't want to go to see Pharaoh and God says, why don't you chuck your staff on the ground? It doesn't turn into a rhino. Uh, it turns into a snake because Moses is doubting that God can uh, can go with him in that, or the serpents in the wilderness biting at their heels, or the Pharisees as the brood of vipers. Like, we could play this theme out for quite some time. So, again, the Hebrew people understood things happening within the literal world, but that literal world was also teaching something deeper theologically of the things that are true about the world. Mm. Great. If you have a, a question you'd like the panel to answer, let me know what it is. You can send a text to 877-933-2484. If you like email, you can email me, bill, at myfaithradio.com. The power panel is here, ready to take your questions. We have pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner. Lots more next, coming up. for being with us today. Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and they all seem to talk well, which I appreciate. Great question from Terry. He said, uh, talking about memorization and how modern society is moving away from another biblical aspect of human improvement and wisdom, which is the biblical memorization. He says, Mm -hmm. with cell phone technology, people are being trained to record it and forget it. How many mm. people even know their friends and family phone numbers anymore if you take away their phones? <laughs> Don't tempt me. <laughs> but so true, right? I mean, I'm sure you guys know that how if you have scripture that you've that have been part of your journey that you memorize, it's amazing how often in conversations or in different locations that it becomes relevant in a given moment. So I think to to be immersed in the word like that, remember it's but but to the point, I can barely remember phone numbers anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, the scripture says that it should be written on our hearts. Yeah. And the hearts, of course, were the, the emotional base or where we make our decisions from. You think about it, I don't carry I carry a Bible a lot, but I mean I don't I can't always bring it up on my iPad or pull it out when I want to. 
But when I need to make decisions, it's amazing how the Lord will bring those scriptures mm. back to my mind that I've somehow put in there. I don't know how I did it, but they're there. And it really makes a big difference. Yeah. And I see that in a lot of dying people. They will, out of, in the last minute or so, start quoting scripture. It's amazing. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. What was the purpose for John to baptize people? Awkward silence. Well, yeah, John preached a baptism of repentance. Uh, and so he was getting people ready for the Messiah. And the way we get ready for, you know, John was six months older than Jesus. John was John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, six months older than Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene at age 30 to do his three years of ministry. And right before Jesus shows up, John the Baptist shows up, baptizing people for repentance of sins. And so the way we, the way John the Baptist got people ready for Jesus was to make them aware of their sins and also aware of God's mercy and, and granting forgiveness. And then Jesus shows up as the embodiment of all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the last person John the Baptist baptizes is Jesus himself, you know, as a way to hand off the ministry to him, and that's when he says, you know, um, also, you know, in John, I must, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. And so I think, again, he is, he was the one who, um, he was the last Old Testament prophet, essentially, um, the last prophet, and um, he was, he was the one to prepare the way. And so I think that, you know, that idea too, just that idea of baptism, that ceremonial washing, again, that was rich in the Jewish culture, that even in itself, again, that that is being brought into fulfillment. That pattern, that ritual, um, that we see so uh, um, you know all over the place in the Old Testament, and that the Pharisees were even practice, would, would still practice. Um, the, it was this idea of uh, you, you need to, uh, and again, the full the full picture of that is actually a picture of the cross of being buried with Jesus in His death, being die, dying to sin, and then just coming up out of the water, being raised again to do to new life. Mm. It's interesting when you look at John the Baptist's baptism, and then you go to Acts 19. Paul is among the people in Corinth, and he says to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? They said, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. He said, what were you baptized in? John's baptism. He said, yeah, John did a baptism for repentance and preparation, but you need to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus. And that's what it says here. And they went out and were rebaptized in Jesus' name. So John's baptism was a preparatory baptism, that is not Christian baptism as we understand it today, although we get the name from it, John the Baptist. But you look at uh, Acts 19, and you would, they eventually rebaptized a lot of people in the name of either the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Acts 19, if you want to look it up. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a question. I love this one. I'm learning to pray. How do I know when I have an answer to my prayer that is truly Jesus rather than me injecting my will? Captain's pointing at. Parish. Yeah, it seems so. like Parish has a lot of wisdom on this one. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of it, it comes back to simply this, that when you, when you pray, what you're trying to do is align yourself with the mind of the Lord. And that means you need to know your scriptures, and you need to be willing to submit it to others. One of the things I learned early in ministry in my prayer life is that I had to submit even what I was asking for to other pastors or leaders I respected who would come back and say to me, What's wrong with you? Why would you ever ask for that? Or, yeah, that makes some sense. So I think it is in the experience of the prayer and what comes out of it, but it's also in the attitude you go in with, because when you have the right attitude and you want to be in harmony with Jesus, 
Jesus changes my mind in prayer. There are many times I'm praying for one thing, and all right in the middle of it, he kind of redirects me. Mm-hmm. So it's a little of both. And I think there's a sense, too, when we're trying to make a decision, there's lots of reasons that we pray, but I think maybe part of this question is, so how do we know when it's maybe confronted with a decision? And there's no surefire way to know, but I know that from a, the perspective of church history, uh, there, there's these two words that uh, are used often. They're consolation and desolation. And we've talked a little bit about that before, but consolation just simply means that there's a sense of peace that, that envelops the possibility of moving forward in that decision, whereas desolation is a, a sense of real disturbance in the soul envelops you as you move sort of that direction. And and it, I think that's a, a pretty helpful model for this. And I think uh, sometimes that peace or that that stirring up disturbance is independent of the circumstances. Sometimes the circumstances make perfect sense right. to walk a certain direction. But as you start walking to it, you're like, man, I feel like I'm walking through quicksand right now. And the whole thing is just ugh, yuck. And other times it doesn't make any sense, but you know you have to walk that direction. And so I think that if people wanted to, they could do their own research on those two words, consolation and desolation within theological history. And it's just basically a fancy way of saying a sense of peace that envelops you or a sense of disturbance that does. Mm-hmm. I think most of us at the time we pray, don't get the satisfaction we'd like to have. It may come. But I look at my life, and you look, go back and you look at your own lives, and I encourage people to do this. Look at how many times in the past the Lord has either answered a prayer or brought you into a situation where you heard his will. And at the time, you weren't fully conscious of it, but because you were open to the Lord, you now see it. So I encourage people to do that. Go back and take a look, and uh, that's a powerful thing to do. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. Yeah. Oh, Justin, were you going to add some? You know, I— yeah, well, the only thing I was just going to say, too, you know, part of the ways that, you know, just at a practical level, just experiencing God answering prayer is, you know, it ha- is the answer bringing you into connection with other people and often and in a deeper relationship with Jesus himself. And so, you know, God doesn't seek to answer prayer just so that we can become more independent. Um, but are we having a growing understanding of our dependence on him, a growing awareness of his presence in our lives? And Often, if if I'm if I don't need anybody else in the body of Christ to see this answer to prayer come through, um, it may be me rather than the Lord, because the mm-hmm. Lord will often answer prayer through other people. Great answer, Justin. Mm-hmm. All right, here, here's a question. I'll start with you, Tom Brock. Growing up, did your father say to you, "I love you" and "I'm proud of you"? Um, n- almost never. Uh, I remember. <laughs> I was about 14 and my brother was 12 and my brother had quit band and my dad got mad at him and said to me, Tom, the one good thing about you, because I played trumpet, I was first chair trumpet. And he said, the one good thing about you, Tom, is you never give up. That's the one compliment I Mm. remember getting from my dad growing up. But, you know, I, I will say this, that kind of embedded in me that I never give up. And I've kind of been like that in my life. And uh, so <laughs> I wish, da- I mean, I, I'm, dad would hug us and kiss us. I don't remember him saying, I love you or I'm proud of you hardly ever. Mm-hmm. Tom Parrish? I, my dad finally told me he loved me about a year before he died, but he had dementia. And I'm convinced he thought I was his brother named Tom. Okay. That was, that was hard. <laughs> now, was he proud of me? No question about it. He was. Did he tell you? About me all the time. Did he tell you? He was proud uh, of you? Uh, a little bit. Not a whole lot, but he'd always tell his friends, and I'd always overhear the conversations. Oh, okay. Peter Kay? 
Yeah, I, I I don't know that I got it a lot. I don't think I doubted it, but yeah, right. I don't think I realized. And my dad has started saying it much more recently over the last 20 years of our relationship. And, and even in my 30s, like I didn't realize what a balm for the soul it was for my dad to say it even at that age. I bet. It was just Awful. really, It's I, I just think we never not need that. Oh, amen. Right? Yeah. Justin? Yeah, I agree with Peter. I, I know my, I mean, for sure my dad told me he loved me every day. Um, and I'm wow. so grateful for that. You're the winner. I'm really grateful for that. Um, but I, but I think I have more vivid memories and to, to Peter's point, like, you know, later on, like kind of early adulthood and into my, I'm still in my thirties, I guess, but you know, of just, uh, different key life moments of him also inserting and I'm proud of you, you know? So um, I appreciate it. A little vulnerability yeah. at the end of the show. Thank you gentlemen. Once again, for an outstanding guide talk, you guys crushed it once again. Appreciate you very much. I love being with you, yeah, Bill. Great Thank you. Thank today. you so yeah, much. Bill. Yeah, have a good uh, week, everyone. We'll, re, uh, we'll gather again next week. Same time, same bat channel. Okay? Love it. Yeah. <laughs> now, in the meantime. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, you bet, Tom Tom Brock. In the meantime, uh, we've got Dr. Marcus Bachman coming into the studio in just several minutes. So that's all ahead. If you have issues with uh, anxiety and some uh, fear and all that, well, we're going to talk to... Uh, Dr. Marcus Bachman for the full hour. So if you even have a question regarding that, you can get it ready and send it over. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.